The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're back. We've done it. This was an episode. <laughs> this was an episode on ventilator management, a little bit on ARDS and COVID, and uh, managing that. Uh, our guest, Dr. Kevin Chung. Uh, before Cyrus tells us a little bit more about that, Paul, can you remind people what is it that we do on this show? I am happy to now that I am fully comfortable managing ARDS and intubation. Um, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And, and Cyrus, tell us who we're talking to tonight. I'd love to do that. This is a really special for me because Dr. Chung was a mentor of mine as a resident. Um, and so uh, it's with uh, great excitement that I think we bring to you Colonel Kevin Chung, MD, who is a proud active duty Army internist who happens to also be a medical intensivist. He is currently the chair of medicine at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland, and holds academic appointments as a professor in the Department of Medicine, as well as the Department of Surgery. Dr. Chung has cared for a variety of challenging, critically ill patients over the years to include combat casualties, burns, multi-trauma, as well as bread and butter medical intensive care unit patients. He is a multi-organ failure enthusiast, fascinated by various mechanic ventilator strategies, renal replacement therapy, ECMO, and other novel extracorporeal organ support technologies. Currently, he's on the front lines of this current pandemic, caring for critically ill COVID-19 patients at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. I was I was just gonna say, Cyrus. I don't I don't think anyone's ever called themselves a multi-organ enthusiast uh, <laughs> before. Multi-organ failure enthusiast. enthusiast. It's it's probably that's that, that phrase has probably never been uttered. Yeah. So I am something just of a general failure enthusiast. So <laughs> I can kind of sympathize. Okay. All right. So uh, without further ado, let's get to this episode where we talk all about the patient that's going to be on mechanical ventilation and a bit about uh, some of the principles of how to uh, approach patients with COVID-19 and ARDS. Kevin, uh, you, you've, you've invited us down to USU in the past, and now, now we're inviting you into our virtual recording studio. We are so excited to have you here. Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself? Well, first, uh, thank you so much for this uh, tremendous opportunity. It's a big honor. So uh, I'm a 47-year-old, one-and-a-half-generation Korean-American Army internist slash intensivist, husband and father of uh, three uh, well-adjusted teenagers, well, generally, and known in my old neighborhood for my chicken wings. Okay. And you're not, you're talking about like... uh... You're not talking about your arms because uh, people people would make fun of me for having uh, chicken wing shoulder blades. <laughs> no, th- those are buffalo chicken wings fried. <laughs> okay. Right. And follow-up question. Why why were they notorious? Tell me about the chicken wings, please. Well, you know, every time I made them, I, I generally, uh, you know, put a lot of work into it, a lot of TLC. I actually marinated in lemon and beer uh, and... Only Miller Lite seems to work. I do that for about 24 hours. Uh, and then I, um, you know, drain it, obviously, and uh, dust it with a little uh, cornstarch. And I, ha- I have it down where, you know, every batch I make, it's uh, eight minutes, uh, comes out nice and crispy. And uh, the neighborhood kids just absolutely love it. And so anytime I 
you know, uh, make the chicken wings or I used to in my old neighborhood, they would all come over and they'd be gone in, you know, 30 minutes. That was just exactly the answer I wanted. And it's funny. I, <laughs> I don't like Miller Lite at all. And yet for some reason, as a cooking beer, it is almost perfect. Like it's wings, oh, it's spaghetti delicious. sauce. It's ideal. Yeah. Yeah. It's delicious. All right. Sorry, Wanda. Uh, do you want to talk Simon? about like medicine or something? Or yeah, no, <laughs> nope. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Uh, Cyrus, do you have? Do you want to ask anything before we get on to the topic, which is a big topic? I would love to, and it's yeah, super exciting to have you here, um, Dr. Chung. Very, uh, very glad to uh, have made this work. Um, I think since you're a lifelong uh, learner and a lifelong educator, um, I'm curious as to what the best advice you've ever received um, as a learner has been, and then maybe as a teacher. Right. So, um, you know, I think uh, instead of best advice, I'll, I'll tell you maybe the best, biggest lesson that I've ever took away. And uh, really, um, you know, I, you, some of you know that I spent a lot of time in the burn center um, early in my career after my uh, critical care fellowship. And when I first got there, um, really, you know, I, I met with the commander, uh, which happened to be, uh, his name is John Holcomb. Um, he's uh, pretty well known in the trauma community. Well, anyway, he, he sat me down and he said, hey, uh, you know, it was the Institute of Surgical Research. I was an internist in a very foreign land taking care of burn patients. And he sat me down and said, you know why we're here? And I, you know, looked at him and, and uh, I said, why? Uh, and he goes, uh, we're here to change practice. And um, what I realized uh, he meant by that is that uh, as we took care of very severely burned patients, uh, what I realized is that sometimes standard of care is, is not enough. Um, and, and you got to do things, you got to, you know, during the day to day, you know, uh, practice, uh, your clinical practice, you have to always be on the lookout for things that you can improve. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that's something that I took away from that experience in the burn center, that early experience. And I'm always looking around for things that, um, you know, aren't doing the job standard where standard of care is just not doing the job. And I'm always trying to figure out how to improve that process or that therapy, uh, so on and so forth. And so, uh, yes, I'm an educator and a lifelong learner. I'm also a part-time uh, researcher. And so that's really the lens through which I, I uh, practice medicine. That's particularly pertinent advice for right now and, and for the topic that we're going to be talking about. I want to move into the topic. And before we do that, did you have a disclaimer that you wanted to make? As uh, our, I, We've had a couple shows with folks from the military, and there's always a, a disclaimer that goes along with it. Right. I guess in my own words, uh, anything I say during this podcast is not the official, does not represent the official views of the DOD or the Army. They're my personal views. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So with that, uh, Cyrus the Younger, will you read a case from Cashlack Memorial? Absolutely. So we have Mr. RDS. Uh, who is a 58-year-old male with a past medical history of diabetes and hypertension who presents to the Cashlack ED with three days of fever, dry cough, malaise, and shortness of breath. He's in moderate respiratory distress on exam with a chest x-ray showing diffuse bilateral opacities. Given strong concern for COVID-19, a PCR swab is obtained and pending. Despite receiving 15 liters of oxygen via non-rebreather mask, his oxygen saturation is 88%. The ED calls you for admission. So that's our case, and I think I'll start 
with the question, what are the um, what are the two or three kind of questions you might have for the patient or the patient's family um, upon that initial encounter? Um, and is there anything else specific that you would want to ask the emergency medicine provider at that time? Well, thanks, Iris. Um, well, the presentation that you just described, um, you know, in the context of this pandemic, uh, he's already in trouble. And, and so, um, you know, my initial evaluation is going to be very focused and very rapid. Um, and, at, and as I'm inv- uh, evaluating the patient, um, at the end of the day, you can't stop being a good internist. And so, uh, even though uh, we're in the midst of this pandemic, uh, a lot of different things can cause diffuse bilateral opacities on a chest X-ray. And so you got to uh, really focus in on uh, ruling out the most important things. Uh, does a patient have CHF? Did he come in with a history of uh, heart disease? Uh, and then, um, you know, really focus in on uh, a, a really abbreviated uh, physical exam. So I would listen for a murmur very quick uh, using, um, you know, a proper PPE, obviously, but uh, a uh, thesoscope that's uh, disposable. As far as what I'm going to ask the ED physician, I already have the information that I need uh, from that description alone. I know the patient's already in trouble. They have uh, evolving disease that, uh, you know, needs action pretty rapidly. Uh, Maybe in terms of uh, laboratory values, I would, uh, you know, probably start with an ABG with a lactate. Uh, I would probably uh, ask for a BNP. Uh, I would probably, uh, you know, in that panel would include a Procal. And then uh, in order to rule out all the different other respiratory illnesses that are infectious, I would fire off a biofire and get that panel cooking. Um, and my, my, my biggest concern right now is getting this patient probably to the ICU as quickly as possible if uh, he looks okay. If not, then I'm going to be thinking in the back of my mind, is this somebody that I need to prepare to intubate or um, ask the team to intubate in their emergency department? I just wanted to clarify the the panel that you mentioned, the biofire, that's a, a type of respiratory panel, like some proprietary one that has a whole bunch of different viruses in it? That's correct. Um, it basically has uh, a, a probably 15 or so different viruses that it checks for. What's in, interesting is that it also has coronavirus in there in the panel, along with parainfluenza, metanumovirus, influenza A and B. Uh, and what a lot of people uh, know uh, by now is that those coronaviruses are not the novel coronavirus. And so uh, having that being negative, that shouldn't uh, make you feel comfortable. <laughs> right. I think our lab report specifically says at Cash Like Northeast, this is not the coronavirus you're looking for. Like, I think it's... Right. Yeah. <laughs> a, a month, three weeks to four weeks ago, not everyone knew that. And they were getting lots of panicked calls. <laughs> So uh, I, I just wanted to, I guess, one comment and then a, and then a follow up question. So you mentioned you mentioned uh, you're being a good internist and thinking through like the differential diagnosis for ARDS. And Cyrus had pointed out this great New England Journal review that uh, we can link to in the show notes. It mentions that the most common things we should think of are pneumonia, aspiration of gastric contents and sepsis. And, and then there's all sorts of other either direct lung injuries or indirect lung injuries right. that can that can lead to this. So that was the comment. And then the question is, you mentioned procalcitonin and, and, and Paul, dare we go there? 
Paul, there we go. <laughs> I, I was going to dare if you didn't, um, just because it, I never know what to do with that. So what, what do you do with that? So how does that actually help guide your management? I am truly asking as someone who's just a, a procalcitonin agnostic. So, so, you know, in our limited experience uh, during this pandemic, the procalcitonin isn't very helpful uh, in helping differentiate viral infection versus bacterial. Um, however, you know, if I've had patients in the past with very, very high procalcitonin levels, and in that scenario, um, it would make me, let's say, with the same presentation, it would make me think, hmm, could this be a bacterial infection uh, that's going on that we're dealing with? And so in that way, it would, it would help me. If it's when it's like two or three or four, uh, you're absolutely right. It doesn't really help the, uh, the clinical uh, you know, uh, situation. Yeah, the um, the Internet Book of Critical Care podcast. Uh, those those guys talked about this recently too. They do they they're doing some great stuff on COVID as a as a shout out to that one. And they mentioned the same thing. Like a negative procal is helpful. You know, it's pointing towards that this is a viral thing. A super super high one might get, make you think there's more of a bacterial infection. But then a lot of patients fall in that kind of middle, like three to ten range, is what they were the range that they were giving. Yeah, so. that's absolutely correct. This is almost a complete aside, and we can even cut this out if it's not relevant. But as we're, I think, as we're testing patients who are COVID suspect, there's a huge battery of labs that we're checking just to, just I think, to find some sort of signal in, in the noise. And what happens is that the COVID will come back negative, and then you have a D dimer of three thousand, and you have this abnormal procalcitonin and a CRP that's slightly above normal. I'm like I don't know what to do with any of this information now. Like it's just <laughs> so you're just stuck there with a D dimer of a bazillion and someone who does not have coronavirus at least so far as we know. Or, or at least in that first test, right, test right, that right, be a false right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, as the test begins to fail us more, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we should just. I think we should just call it out uh, specifically. I mean, it seems like it has better specificity the the nasopharyngeal swab than it does sensitivity. And so people, you know, for this patient, as you mentioned, you're you're super concerned for COVID. Even a negative test there, you're probably going to keep this person on enhanced droplet and treat it as if it is COVID. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah, we've had many, many cases where they present very similar to this and they're negative and we, you know, that first test and we're like, nope, uh, we don't believe that. We test again and it's negative and we still say, nope, let's test again. <laughs> <laughs> so I've gotten three tests before with a tracheal aspirate on top of that and, and um, you know, that's, that's how we're do- dealing with this right now. Yeah. And, I, and for this particular patient who's looking kind of garbagey, so as just a, I'm a simple country doc in, in the Northeast, and I see this patient, my algorithm would be to call an intensivist. And so I call the intensivist to see the patient, i.e. you. What, where, what are you thinking about as you're thinking about sort of airway management and where to go from here? What are the things that are important to you? And what do you have sort of a, a simple algorithmic approach that you go to for patients like this? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I look at the patient and if they're talking to me and able to complete their sentences, I know that uh, I have some time. Um, it's it's when they start, um, you know, really uh, breathing heavily and using accessory muscles, and they can't even complete a full sentence. That I start thinking, hmm, uh, clinically, I should I should pr- probably think about uh, either non invasive uh, uh, ventilation or uh, getting them intubated. The accessory muscle thing is really the the key. I think um, that that's something that. Um, for me, in, during this pandemic, taking care of these patients, uh, that's my trigger to, to really think about uh, securing the airway. Uh, as long as the patient's talking to me, there are many different options we have available in the hospital um, uh, that, that, that can be utilized, and we, we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Just maybe um, I, the things that I hear about 
uh, high flow nasal cannula, and then some of the non-invasive options like a um, bi-level positive pressure ventilation. Just maybe briefly talking about um, kind of when you use them, how you use them, um, and perhaps if you can um, comment at all on the concerns um, about aerosolization um, of, of uh, the virus uh, with the use of those modalities. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's really interesting because uh, none of us right now, even, you know, uh, weeks into this pandemic, can really call ourselves experts in this. Um, it, you know, it takes 10 years or so to really become an expert 10,000, the 10,000 hour rule, right? And so nobody really in this world has had that many hours uh, taking care of COVID patients. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Um, but, um, but you know, uh, so there's lots of, you know, there's lots of controversy with regards to what is aerosol generating and what is not. I recently had a conversation or email conversation really with uh, some colleagues in South America who basically uh, stated in their guidelines that they're not going to use non-rebreathers even because they think that is aerosol generating. And so um, it's something that is certainly evolving and, and who knows what the right answer is. For right now, we escalate from, you know, simple nasal cannula. You have plenty of patients on nasal cannula in the ward. Uh, when you get to about six liters, that's when you need to make a move to something um, higher concentration. That's when you move to a non-rebreather. Generally, a simple face mask is fine, and a non-rebreather is uh, technically a step up. But in a rapidly breathing patient, they're in training room air, uh, you know, around the side of the masks, and so that non that uh, reservoir is not really acting as an O2 reservoir, if you know what I mean. And so um, really uh, when somebody's breathing uh, rapidly, a simple face mask is a non-rebreather is just as good or just as bad as a simple face mask. Um, so with regards to high flow nasal cannula, there are a variety of different um, high, flow, uh, high flow nasal cannula uh, devices out there. And uh, most of them go up to 40. Some of them go up to a little bit higher in general, there's actually a, a technique that uh, is important to apply in these patients. You can't just slap on high flow nasal cannula uh, and walk away uh, because uh, it, it's something that is very foreign. And whenever, you know, early in my career, I used, actually, when high flow nasal cannula was new, I used to bring the residents and the fellow into the RT room and had, uh, I had each of the, the uh, you know, the residents and fellows uh, put on the high flow nasal cannula and I would turn up the flow to 40 liters per minute and just have had them just, uh, you know, test out how that, what that felt like. And, and it's, uh, you know, I would highly encourage uh, you to try that sometime. It, it's actually, you know, clears your sinuses. <laughs> um, but, but regardless, there's, there's actually a technique you, you, you want to titrate up kind of like you do with, uh, you know, a non-invasive positive pressure ventilator. You, you, you start at like 10, 20 liters per minute and the nice thing about the high flow is that you can independently adjust the flow and the FiO2. So there are two different knobs that you're turning, right? And so you're adjusting the flow um, and uh, going up to 20 liters, let's say. And uh, when you initially start someone, you can crank up the FiO2 to 100%. Just leave it there, right? And so um, you turn up the flow slowly and coach the patient uh, through the nasal cannula breathing. So breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your mouth. And as you do that, purse your lips. So purse your lips. And what that does is it generates sort of this intrinsic peep. 
that is helped by the flow. And there have been studies that, that have been done in terms of um, uh, how much pressure high flow generates. And at 40 liters per minute, uh, in the retropharyngeal space, there's actually, uh, you know, you can register pressures as high as five. So it's like getting a peep of five at 40 liters per minute. And so it, there, it, there's a little bit of respiratory support that uh, it's able to deliver as well as the the high concentration of of oxygen. And so, you know, the, the, the big concern right now is, you know, is this an aerosol generating procedure? And so among our uh, first patients that developed this syndrome needed an escalation of, of oxygen therapy, uh, we asked, hey, let's put them on high flow. And everybody, nurses, RTs looked at us like we were crazy. Like, oh my gosh, you're, you're endangering our lives. And, 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 and that's something that uh, we had to work through. And, um, you know, what we decided as a group is that, okay, high flow, we don't know if it's aerosol generating, but in order to minimize the potential for transmission to our healthcare workers, what we're going to do is, number one, we're going to put them in a negative pressure room if they go on it. Uh, and number two, we're going to put a mask over them. So a surgical mask. And so that's not something that we typically do, uh, but anything that we can do to minimize transmission, aerosol generation and transmission to our healthcare providers, we're willing to do. And that's what we've done uh, recently. Right now, the, the party line is, and this is not, by, again, based on any literature, the party line is uh, in the United States, CPAP, you want to try to avoid as much as possible. Uh, I feel like, you know, we're watching these videos of, uh, you know, YouTube videos of what's happening in Italy. And it seems like everybody's on BiPAP, these big hoods uh, that you've seen, you probably have seen. Uh, and you're like, well, what is going on there? They, they ran out of ventilators. And so the, at, at times of desperation, you know, we may say right now, oh, let's hold off on BiPAP. Let's go straight to intubation. When we run out of ventilators, BiPAP is going to become an option. So. I, I, this all, you know, half the, probably a lot of the issue with this is so much of this is anecdotal and we, we haven't enough data to know what's what's true and, and sort of what's noise. But you hear about this sort of, I, I've heard it described as apathetic hypoxia where the patients are sort of hypoxic but feel okay. And then along with that anecdotal reports, there's this idea of proning patients, having them lay on their bellies, even in the absence of ventilation. So you just have them lay, lay prone and then people are reporting you see your oxygenation improve. Is this something that you're doing for patients like this who who's look kind of dicey but aren't quite ready for for intubation just yet? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I told you early on that my trigger for deciding to intubate somebody is when they get tired. Uh, and so uh, I, I can assess that by, you know, physically just looking at them visually. Um, and if they're using their accessory muscles, uh, you know that they're starting to get tired. And then I keep on asking them, hey, how are you feeling? Do you feel tired? Uh, some patients will tell me, I'm exhausted. Can you please intubate me? No kidding. That that has happened. Um, but if they're doing okay from a from a work of breathing standpoint, and it's just the hypoxia that you're dealing with, um, that's you can manage that. You know, you, you can deliver um, uh, you know as much oxygen as as any ventilator could. And so um, you know, that's when that's where the high flow nasal cannula is very very helpful. Uh, you mentioned awake uh, proning. And so, you know, I, I've done a little bit of a literature search on this because we started doing this because, you know, we're, we're sort of in desperate times at the moment and we're trying to figure out 
uh, you know, strategies to avoid mechanical ventilation at all, you know, if at all possible. And so uh, there have been two papers that have been published. I think one had 15 patients uh, and the other had 20 patients. That's the level of data we're talking about, not randomized. <laughs> but but the thing is, um, oxygenation improved in those patients. And so if you want to buy yourself time for either the patient to heal or for whatever therapy you're uh, instituting, right now we don't have any, that's the problem. But if you're just trying to buy time and, and try to you're trying to avoid um, intubation and you're trying to see if the patient will just get better on their own, uh, a trial of awake proning is, is fine. Uh, and and I, I would encourage that. Just know that it's not based on high quality evidence. You're just buying time. You're not curing disease. And hopefully, uh, you know, something in the body is, is uh, starting to work and, try, uh, you know, starting to, to the, your uh, immune system is trying to defend itself and, and, and uh, the patient's going get to get better on their own. Uh, that's, the, that's the, you know, best case scenario. Um, an- another thing is that some patients don't tolerate awake proning. You know, we, we've asked patients to do this and we say, hey, can you lay on your belly for a little while? And, and they're like, no, I can't do it you know, uh, back pain or the bed's just uncomfortable and others are glad to do it. And they're just on their, on their bed, you know, it's adult belly time, adult tummy <laughs> right, time. That right. And so they're fine with it. And so, um, it really is, uh, you should individualize that, that technique. And in those that can tolerate it, it, it looks like clearly it's buying time. And we have had patients in the ICU who were trying other therapies, and we're doing this just just to try to avoid uh, intubation. And in some patients, it works; others, it doesn't. Uh, you, you partially answered my question there. So, you, so the awake patients, you can instruct them just lay on your belly because yeah. there was someone joking around on Twitter about repurposing the ortho team to help uh, prone patients. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't honestly, I didn't know if that was a joke or not because I can imagine if someone is actually like lined up on a ventilator and then you're proning them, that's a much bigger thing than if it's just somebody that's like 40 or 50 years old and you're like, just lay on your belly for a while. Right. Uh, it's much easier when the patients can prone themselves. I can tell you um, proning somebody who's mechanically ventilated, paralyzed and, and doing it with a bunch of lines coming out, you know, a bunch of drips um, connected to the ventilator, it's not an easy task. Um, and you mentioned, uh, the ortho team and and the surgical team, you know, in the hospital, who has the most experience, uh, proning patients, it's them because they do it every day for spine surgery. Uh, and so, uh, you know, our, the first patient that we proned our unit, our ICU hadn't had, uh, somebody that needed proning on their own bed for a very long time. Typically what we do, we have this luxury of being able to uh, to order this magnificent bed that looks like a huge tank. It's called the rotoprone mattress. Yeah. And it just basically rotates <laughs> you around and around and around if you want, you know, back and forth. We don't do that. We just use it to prone uh, once. Uh, but, but uh, you know, since that's not available because they're all taken right now, um, we have to prone the patients in their own hospital bed. And that, that, te- that takes technique, that takes experience. And so, uh, for our first patient, we we asked uh, one of the surgical nurses to come up, OR nurses, who had a ton of experience doing it, and she helped out. And uh, we were able to successfully accomplish that. 
So I think we're going to take a a brief detour here into mm-hmm. ARDS before we get back to uh, kind of talking about some of the specifics of intubation. So when when you go down to see this patient, uh, the oxygen requirement's high, but they they look comfortable right now. Um, not they're actually not using a lot of accessory muscles. Don't look the, like they're going to tire out just yet. Um, and so you're thinking this, but you are thinking this is ARDS. So how how do you actually make the diagnosis? What are the criteria as as people working in just as hospitalists probably aren't used to thinking about this as much other than just send them to the ICU once you think someone has it? Yeah, yeah so I, I consider, I mean, the lung is an end organ like every other organ. And so when I see bilateral infiltrates on a chest X-ray, the first thing I think of is the lungs are injured, you know, because of either a pathogen or because of a perfusion problem or because of, you know, secondary sepsis uh, or the patient's volume overloaded and they're in heart failure. So it's one of those two, right? And so um, really by definition, ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. That, that's by definition. And so technically, to make the diagnosis of ARDS, uh, we use the Berlin criteria, uh, and technically, they have to be on some degree of PEEP. And so we, we don't generally um, diagnose ARDS in a non-intubated patient. Um, we just don't do that in practice. Although if they're on high flow or uh, a little CPAP or BiPAP on a non-invasive uh, ventilator, technically they meet the criteria, one of the criteria. Uh, the other criteria are bilateral infiltrates and ruling out uh, uh, a cardiogenic cause. And really ju- that's just clinical judgment. Really. It's not, it's not that sophisticated. It used to be like a wedge less than X, you know, uh, to, to make sure that they don't have cardiogenic shock. Uh, and then there are, uh, different degrees of ARDS. So once you diagnose ARDS, uh, yes, no, then you categorize them, uh, by mild, moderate, and severe. And the way you categorize them is using the PF ratio. Uh, the PF ratio is uh, the PaO2 divided by the FiO2. And, um, you know, normal people are walking around with PF ratios around 400, 500. Um, patients with a problem, uh, you know, with ARDS, they're less than 300. And so that we consider that mild. Uh, less than 200 is severe, or I mean uh, moderate, and then less than 100 is severe. Uh, and so that's how we classify and stage ARDS. And there's cl- a clear stepwise increase in mortality uh, as the severity of ARDS uh, increases from mild, moderate to severe. And so, you, you know, you don't necessarily make that diagnosis right off the bat. You have in the back of your mind, the patient has some problem that's probably non-cardiogenic that's, resulted in, that's resulting in injury to the lungs uh, that's causing them to have problems breathing and oxygenating. That's how I sort of uh, frame the problem as I wheel them up to the ICU. So let me let me try and do a recap and then we'll we'll kind of move on to the the next part of the case. So we we went down so we we're we're so far we're we're sending like we're going down to look at the patient, look at their are they working hard to breathe, are they tiring out? ABG, lactate, a BNP, um the one that you check for heart failure, not BMP, basic metabolic, right. uh, procalcitonin, um, which is most helpful if it's really low or really high, 
and then a a, a viral panel that's going to check a whole bunch of different viruses. And uh, probably this patient, and we would we would do the the specific COVID test as well. Okay, so Kevin, you've you've got the patient now. You brought him up to your ICU, and as he's been transferring, you know, it's taking five ten minutes for him to get to the ICU. He's just kind of starting to look um, a little a little sicker than when you saw him in the emergency department. Um, you know, you've got him on high flow now. You've got him kind of maxed out on the on the high flow nasal cannula and the pulse oximeter is only reading 90 to 92%. You're starting to see some increased work of breathing. Um, and, and you're kind of considering your options. You briefly thought about um, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, but really the writing's on the wall. This guy needs to be intubated. Um, so I think that, you know, we could spend an hour talking about the nuance of how you intubate this patient and who makes up your intubation team, et cetera, et cetera. I think that um, at this point, what I would say is, you know, you page for the team, the team's there, you got the patient intubated. Um, and now the RT turns to you and asks you, you know, what settings do you want? Um, and I think, you know, take it from there. You know, uh, how do you start this patient on positive pressure ventilation? So th- that's a that's a good transition. And and so what, you know, I, what I'd like to do is really strip down mechanical ventilation to the most clinically relevant items uh, and then really go from there. And, and we'll talk about initial settings. Uh, so um, the way I like to think about it is in terms of volume or pressure. So you're either targeting a vo- specific volume for, ev- for every breath or you're targeting a specific pressure. Uh, and the most common mode that's utilized is assist control. So you're either on a volume assist control or pressure assist control. I'll limit my discussion to that um, and leave SIMV and uh, pressure support and volume support uh, alone for now. And so for volume assist control, which is the most common mode, uh, conventional mode of ventilation, there are a couple of variables that you want to sort of tell the RT. Uh, First, you want to tell them what rate, you know, in general, we say 12. uh, But in a patient that's been breathing really hard, and let's say they um, uh, have already, you know, they, they were breathing with a minute ventilation in the twenties and you just put them at 12, that may not, not be enough. So in a, you know, depending on the situation, you may start at 18 or 20. It depends on the situation. Then you tell them, uh, a tidal volume. Uh, again, if you're targeting a volume, uh, you, you, uh, you know, give them a specific tidal volume and that tidal volume is anywhere between six to eight cc's per kilogram ideal body weight. So you look at the patient and if their average size, uh, 80, 70, 80 kilo, uh, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, around 400, if you're taking six cc's, 400, 420 cc's per kilo, uh, per, uh, per breath. And so you give them a tidal volume, you give them a rate, and then you, you give them a peep. Um, and generally most patients that we intubate will, will start at five, but, um, you know, every, uh, patient needs to have the PEEP titrated. And I'd like to say that, uh, you should titrate, uh, the PEEP to the patient as much as possible. Uh, and then, and then there's the FIO2. And generally when you intubate somebody, the first, uh, initial setting, you're going to start at a hundred and then titrate down from there. Uh, and so that's, that's really what, um, that what you start with. Um, uh, those are the settings and then you get a gas and then you, you adjust ventilation by increasing um, uh, the minute ventilation, the respiratory rate and tidal volume, 
or um, if the patient is having an oxygenation problem, then you can uh, titrate the PEEP, drive up the mean airway pressure. Since you're already on 100%, uh, you don't have a lot of room there. Um, you, you work on the PEEP uh, in order to increase the mean airway pressure uh, so that you improve oxygenation. So ventilation, uh, to improve ventilation and CO2 removal, you're working on the respiratory rate and the tidal volume in order to improve oxygenation. You're generally, you know, you got the FiO2 and then you're generally left with the PEEP. That's hugely helpful. I, I don't have many patients, I have to confess, that are anywhere near their ideal body weight. And I know there's, there's calculators and stuff online. Do you have a back of the cocktail in that calculation um, to just kind of guesstimate what someone's my, doing? My back of the co- cocktail napkin calculation is I look at the RT and, and ask them, hey, <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you figure <laughs> out the ideal body weight? Because they, they'll get out the their race. tape. Yeah, they'll get out their measuring tape and, and, and then punch it into their uh, med calc and, and spit out a tidal volume. So that is uh, each time. It, yeah. And so, so uh, you know, you may be able to figure that out on, uh, on med calc probably has it. And so, um, you know, it's really based on height and then and then gender. Gotcha. I, I, for a second there, I thought <laughs> there is a curb your enthusiasm from season 10 where Larry, Larry finds a, uh, of one of those guess your, guess your weight guys at a carnival. And he's, <laughs> he's, he like gives the guy a hundred bucks to guess the weight of all his friends and family. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, anyway, I digress. I've, I've derailed the show. So, okay. So we, okay. so now we know, uh, one of my follow-up questions to this was you, we, we have the patient intubated. We're going to look at the respiratory rate and tidal volume to ventilate them and the, the PEEP and FiO2 to oxygenate them. How often, like when's a good time to check that first blood gas and can I check just a venous gas or they have to be ABGs? So that, that's a good question. Um, in the absence of an, of an arterial line or in the absence of uh, access to the artery. So, for example, you're waiting for uh, an A-line or you're, you're waiting for somebody to get an uh, arterial stick, you may have a, a central line. Uh, and so maybe they're having trouble getting that, um, that stick. And so a VBG is just as good, you know, in, in terms of trending um, uh, and doing vent adjustments from. And so, um, you know, in general, I'll, I'll use that to just get a get a sense of where I am. So, for example, if the pH is 7.1 and the PCO2 is 70 or 80, then I know I, I, I need to do something. Uh, whereas if, some, you know, if you're looking at a VBG with a pH of 7.3, you know, um, anything above a 7.25 is like a survival condition. So you, you can probably chill out a little bit to 7.25, no matter what the PCO2 is. And so, you know, if you're looking at a 7.3 and uh, PCO2 50, you know, you can sit back and, and let the, uh, you know, uh, patient just sort of settle out. They're probably uh, getting uh, sedation started in the form of propofol. You're probably hanging um, a little bit of fentanyl and uh, you're trying to get things situated. And in general, about an hour later, once you, the dust settles, uh, you can probably, hopefully you'll have an A-line by then. Uh, and so what I, ha- I didn't mention earlier is that, you know, if you have that VBG, obviously you can't titrate the PEEP. Um, for that, you have the SAT. Uh, hopefully you have a reliable saturation of the pul- regular pulse ox. And so with a pulse ox and a VBG, you can pretty much get by. Optimally, you want an, uh, an A-line in and um, you want to be checking arterial blood gases. 
Can I ask, uh, before we before we move on to talking about some of the pressure stuff, or maybe this relates, mm-hmm. yeah. I know that uh, there's a peak pressure and a plateau pressure, right. and you want to keep those within a certain range. Does the peep uh, does the peep affect those, or can I just go go buck wild with the peep and put it up to like twenty or something? Like, what's a what's a range of peep that I should feel comfortable with? So, so first, um, you mentioned peak and plateau pressure. This is a good time to sort of this, you know, discuss what that is. So, peak pressure is really the pressure that is transduced at the end of the ET tube as air is rushing into the lung, and so the things that impact that that pressure. Um, is basically general airway resistance. And so anything that, um, that impacts the resistance will increase the, the peak. On top of that, um, you know, uh, basically, you know, uh, if the patient's edematous or if they have, let's say, a pneumothorax, all those things have, uh, will impact the peak pressure. Uh, the plateau pressure is, really something that you have to measure and be deliberate about measuring. And so you have to talk to the RT and say, hey, can we get a plateau pressure? And generally, most RTs are checking it every four hours anyway. Right. So peak pressure, you're seeing it on the monitor. Every time a breath goes in, you'll register a peak pressure because it's just every time it's just registering what the pressure is as air is rushing into the lung. Plateau pressure is something that you have to to measure by uh, by uh, holding a button that calls that's that says inspiratory pause, right? So you press that button and have the patient breathe in, right? The air is going into the lung, and and you you pause that breath, that end that inspiratory breath, such that all the pressure that is now rushed into the lung is dissipating all throughout the lung, and you're measuring that plateau pressure. What you're measuring is transalveolar pressure. So it's the best surrogate that we have uh, for pressure that's being exerted at the level of the alveoli, right? So that's the plateau pressure. And so um, really what's interesting is that when both peak and plateau pressure are elevated, that takes you down this differential that's very different from when you have a peak pressure that's elevated and the plateau pressure is the same. So if there's a discrepancy, the delta widens. So if both the peak and plateau pressure uh, are going getting elevated, that means that it's not about the airway. It's about everything that's around the airway. What's squishing that alveoli that's causing that peak and plateau pressure together to go high? So um, you mentioned PEEP. So if you turned up your PEEP to 20, your peak and plateau pressure can't go lower than 20 because you're already, you know, there, right? And then now you have to account for interstitial edema, uh, thoracic uh, compliance problems. Maybe they have a big panis and you've given them a lot of fluid. They have abdominal compartment syndrome. All those things register into the plateau pressure and then together peak, peak, peak and plateau go up together. And so if you have both peak and plateau pressure uh, elevated, then, then you know that something's compressing the alveoli. You know, an example is uh, hemothorax, a pneumothorax, so on and so forth. When you have a discrepancy between the peak and plateau, so that delta widens, then you know that it's obstruction. Okay, and so obstruction can happen because what 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 it means is that you know that peak pressure is registering some resistance in the airway somewhere between the ventilator and the alveoli, right? The, but but the plateau pressure has remained the same, so that means once the air dissipates. The, the, the pressure that's generate that's uh, you know that you're measuring that's uh, a surrogate to the, the pressure that the alveoli is feeling is the same, 
And so that means when they, when you have that discrepancy, that means there's an obstruction. So where is that obstruction? It could be in the tubing. It can be in the ET tube. So sometimes pet patients wake up a little bit and they start biting the ET tube. Nowadays we have, uh, you know, uh, bite blockers. So we prevent that, but you know, let's say we had a hundred intubated patients, not everybody's going to have a bite block. So, you know, that could be a potential problem. So what happens you look at the patient, if they're biting on the tube and that's why they're, um, peak pressure alarm is going off, then you sedate them a little bit more. Uh, and then the next thing you do, you suction them because, you know, if you have thick secretions, that's going to cause airway resistance and, you know, thereby increase the peak pressure. Uh, so you, you suction them and see what happens. Um, and then the last thing is a uh, small airway um, collapse or, or uh, spasm. And so if you have somebody with small airway disease like asthma, um, uh, that can cause a peak pressure to go, uh, get elevated while the plateau pressure remains stable. And so in that scenario, you give them a, a an MDI, uh, I would say NEB, but nebulizers are a, a, consider a, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, aerosol yeah. generating procedure. And so, so right now we're using MDIs. And so, um, so there's a sequence of things that you can do, um, based on the, uh, differential, uh, presentation, uh, when you look at the peak and uh, plateau pressure. And I wanted to shout out to another one of your colleagues. Is I believe it's Dr. Jessica Bunin. Yeah, uh, right. If I'm if I'm pronouncing it wrong, I apologize. She has some she has some some wonderful uh, YouTube videos that that talk. I think they're each about fifteen twenty minutes, and they talk through a lot of the specific right. things. She does some on on vent management as well. Those those were really helpful yeah. in preparing for this. Right. And so with the with the peak. Uh, with the resistance, the um, the peak pressure, we that was a really good differential diagnosis. And for the plateau pressure, some of the other things uh, mentioned, other than like there can be either external compression or filling of the alveoli with like right. blood, pus, fluid. Right. And in the case of ARDS, they I imagine they would get they could get high uh, plateau pressures from filled filling with fluid and inflammatory cells. That's correct. That's okay. correct. Filling with either blood or. Uh, exudate or whatever, anything that fills the alveoli that'll register as, as a high plateau pressure. And this seems like it would just be harder to treat. It, it seems, it, it doesn't seem like as easily as like, just give bronchodilators, make sure they're not biting the tube. Right. So if, if someone has a, a high plateau pressure, is that a patient that you identify as like, this person's in trouble? Like what, what should Paul and I do if this comes up? I, right. I don't really know how to troubleshoot this one. Right. So that, that's an evolving, uh, you know, so th we're talking about an evolving patient. And so one of the things that, that we should talk about is if you're deciding to put somebody on a volume targeted mode, so volume assist control in this setting, which is really the most uh, prevalent uh, mode, it's a mode of choice for most uh, patients. Uh, like you said, we have to measure peak and plateau. Peak and plateau gives you information uh, uh, about com lung compliance. Okay. So let's say you intubate somebody and, uh, their plateau pressure is 30. You know that they have really stiff lungs, for example. Um, and so over time, uh, you know, let's say you diurese the patient and, you know, the, after three liters uh, of diuresis, the next day, the plateau pressure is 20. So we went from 30 to 20, you know that the lungs got a little bit better and they, they're a little bit more compliant, right? And so on the flip side, if you intubate somebody, you want to 
go ahead and make sure that you measure that peak and plateau so that uh, you can get an idea of where they are at baseline. And so if we think about the things that you want to monitor after you intubate a patient, it's PF ratio. And uh, so you get, you know, ABG serially. Um, something that I like to also uh, incorporate into, uh, you know, in terms of deciding how well somebody's doing or how bad somebody's doing is the oxygenation index. I don't know if you've uh, heard of that, but PF ratio it is uh, a little bit flawed in that it's not in, uh, accounting for the degree of support that you're providing the patient uh, to result in uh, that PAO2. So, for example, if you had a P PF ratio of 300 on a PEEP of 5, you know, and then uh, on the next patient, uh, you have a PF ratio of 300 on a PEEP of 20, those are two different patients, right? The, the PEEP of 20 patient, although PF ratio is 300, is sicker because they have stiffer lungs, right? Because they needed that degree of PEEP to, uh, to get to that PF ratio. And so PF ratio by itself is not a good way of uh, really deciding how well somebody's doing from an oxygenation standpoint. It's oxygenation index that, that really is helpful because it, it indexes the PF ratio to the mean error pressure uh, that you're um, uh, delivering to to uh, get to that PAO2, so oxygenation index. Uh, and so so uh, the three things I monitor are the PF ratio, oxygenation index, and then some assessment of compliance. Now, again, in a volume-targeted mode, it's uh, peak and plateau. On the flip side, if you are on a pressure-assist control mode or pressure-targeted mode, you want to monitor volumes. Okay, so let's say you, you put somebody on a pressure-assist control of 10 and PEEP of 5. And at that pressure of 5, their tidal volumes are, you know, 300, 400. And then you do some type of therapy over the next 24 hours, you diurese them, let's say. And then their tidal volumes at that given pressure is 500. That means their compliance got better. Okay. And, and, and uh, the flip side can be true where you have to, in order to generate a tidal volume, you keep having to, you keep having to increase that pressure. And so, um, you know, uh, that, that'll give you a lot of information as to which direction the patient is heading. Again, on a volume targeted mode, peak and plateau, PF ratio, and oxygenation index. So when the patient, we, we have our patient on the vent, we, we made our ventilator settings, um, we, we have them on the vent. What are you paying attention to when you're, when you're looking at the patient and when you're looking at the ventilator, anything that we should really pay yeah. mind to? Right. So this, this is a very important question because it's happening all over the place where the patients are going on low tidal volume ventilation. Uh, they're, we're adjusting the PEEP. So one thing that you got to look, look out for is patient ventilator dysynchrony. Okay. And so um, Stuart's not here. We can talk about Stuart. Right. <laughs> so, so let's say Stuart runs a mile. Okay. To be fair, before you go on, we can talk about Stuart even if he is here. That's totally, <laughs> okay. totally acceptable. He it's may or may not be paying attention okay. if he was here. Let's pretend yeah. Stuart can run a mile for the, for the he, purposes he, of he, he, he listens to episodes of the Curbsiders, doesn't he? I highly doubt <laughs> that. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So let's say Stuart runs a mile, okay? And immediately after he crosses the finish line, he's huffing and puffing. We intubate him. And he requires, because he's, you know, he just, he's really, really tired. Uh, for every breath, he requires a, a flow of 100 uh, liters per minute, okay? Um, we intubate him, and, and for every breath, he, he needs like uh, 600 to 800 cc's per breath because he's just pooping, you know, he's really, really tired, and, and he's breathing really hard. 
So we intubate them, intubate Stuart, okay? And we cap the tidal volume at 400, okay? We fix the flow because, it, you know, generally when we put somebody on uh, volume assist control, we don't even look at the flows that's automatically put in and it's generally a fixed flow of uh, 60 liters per minute. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we make them breathe these very small tidal volumes and we fix the flow. Um, what do you think Stuart's going to do when you do that to him? Become hypercapnic? No, he's going to freak out, right? Because you're, <laughs> you, you don't, you're probably, you know, his sedation's not, not, uh, catch it, hasn't caught up to him. So he's going to freak out. So what do we do when that happens? Um, he's not getting enough flow and his tidal volumes aren't big enough, uh, for what he needs. Right. And so what do we do in practice when, you know, and these patients that they're getting intubated, that's really the clinical scenario that, that you're seeing. They, they're running, uh, you know, a, a marathon and they're highly metabolic. They have this huge minute ventilation requirement. We're intubating them and we're fixing their flows and we're fixing their tidal volumes. Okay. And so these patients are, are going to be irritated. Uh, because they're not getting the breast they need. So what do we do in response as clinicians? We sedate them more, okay? Instead of giving the patient what they need, we're driving up the sedation and making the patient tolerate what we're giving them, okay? And, and so instead of doing that, think about flow as a variable because in somebody that's huffing and puffing and you intubate them and give them these tiny, tiny tidal volumes, they may need a flow of 80 to 100. And you can adjust that. You can tell the RT to adjust that. Uh, in general, this happens a lot, right? So uh, we'll put somebody on and the alarms will go off and then we'll look at around, you know, in the patient's room and we'll be at the bedside and, and, and you know, let's just increase the, the patient. There's a lot of ventilator dysynchrony. Uh, patient ventilator dyssynchrony, let's increase the sedation. Instead, go to the bedside. What you can do is one of two things. You can, you can increase the flow just arbitrarily, or you can switch them to pressure, uh, a pressure targeted mode, pressure control, uh, assist control ventilation. Um, instead of a fixed flow when you're delivering a volume targeted mode, pressure control, it's variable flow. So, um, since you're targeting a pressure, Every breath, whatever the patient needs, they'll get that flow, right? So if you switch them temporarily to a pressure control, assist control mode, then you'll be able to see how much flow they desire, the patient desires every with every breath. It may be 100, it may be 120. And so once if you do that temporarily, you'll be able to see how much flow that they need for per, per breath. And then now you can match the ventilator settings to what the patient needs, is this flow, I know that the, the, the term is lung protective ventilation, and that means right. that you're, that's, that's where we're choosing this low tidal volume instead sure. of like, uh, of six milliliters per kilogram. Sure. Does, does the flow go along with lung protective ventilation or is there a risk if you put the flow really high, like twice the normal that it's going to hurt, hurt the lungs or worsen the ARDS? So, so this is a critical question. And so in a non-compliant lung, uh, you know, in general, we want to try to non-compliant. What I mean by that is a true ARDS with filled alveoli, stiff interstitial, uh, you know, uh, spaces, uh, with edema or scar. Um, you want to make sure that you limit volume trauma as well as, uh, barotrauma. So we uh, limit the tidal volumes for volume trauma. And we also limit the, the pressures that, are exerted at the level of the alveoli at 30. We don't. We try not to go higher than that. 
Okay. But what we're seeing in these patients, uh, and this is where it, it gets kind of screwy because we're trying to apply ARDS net settings to a lung that is relatively compliant and not having problems with uh, alveolar filling just yet in the beginning. Okay, so we're, when, when we put these patients, these COVID patients on, what we're observing, and this is what's been reported throughout, um, uh, you know, the collective experience, that's what's been reported, is that these patients, when you first intubate them, have really nice compliant lungs or almost normal compliance. Um, and so uh, in that situation, it may not be beneficial to stick with six cc's strictly. You may want to look at the patient and, um, you know, some would argue, put them on pressure control right away, you know. Uh, but if you're sticking with a volume targeted mode in many places, you know, that's what they want to do. Um, you want to make sure that they get, they're getting the flow uh, uh, correct uh, for that patient that they're in, in front of. And so, you know, uh, whatever vent mode you, you, you uh, initiate, whatever, uh, whether it's volume or pressure, you want to look at the patient and make sure that on a volume mode, they're getting the right flows and their plateau pressure is reasonable. If you switch them to a pressure assist control mode, you want to make sure that um, the tidal volumes generated are sufficient uh, and you're not going above a pressure of about 30. So in general, with these nice compliant lungs, you may only need five or 10, for example. Uh, and so, uh, you know, strict ARDSnet, ARDSnet over, over time, what's, you know, you, you're absolutely correct. You, you want to prevent, you want to protect the lung as much as possible from the harm that ventilators can induce. Uh, but we have to rethink our initial settings um, when, uh, when, you, when you're dealing with non-ARDS lung. Uh, is it really helpful to limit the tidal volume at truly six cc's? And, and a lot of people are driving up their peep right off the bat. Um, arbitrarily without trying to individualize it to the patient. Uh, and, and that could be problematic uh, and that can cause hemodynamic problems. And so the bottom line is, you know, you set your initial settings, you look at the patient. If they're, they're not tr tolerating it, don't just sedate them. Try to figure out what's going on. Get your RTs involved, get your intensivist and say, hey, th this patient's not tolerating the vent um, and, and there, there's a lot of patient ventilator dysynchrony. If you say those words to, to the intensivist, they'll be pretty impressed. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and when you're faced with that situation, the knee-jerk response is sedate the patient, but maybe not. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should look at the patient and, and, and see if we can find a ventilator mode that's more comfortable so that we don't have to sedate them and paralyze them. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. I think you could probably still make a really compelling argument for sedating Stuart specifically. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And paralyzing him, hopefully with enough sedation. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect segue. Um, you know, so um, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about um, some additional troubleshooting um, in certain circumstances. Um, and I know we're also starting to kind of discuss the differences between um, what I'll call garden variety ARDS and then the COVID-19 specific patient. Um, before we kind of flesh that stuff out and then, then let you, uh, let you get to bed, Kevin, um, it, um, for our audience, um, and, and maybe for my own understanding, it sounds like, um, in terms of compliance, we're really trying to keep those plateau pressures under 30. Um, that 30 is kind of the number that we're really trying to keep an eye out for. 
Um, and it sounds like in your more kind of garden variety ARDS patient who does have higher plateau pressures, um, there, there may actually be some harm uh, done if you were to just kind of increase the flows as you were talking about. And I, I guess that get back, gets back to eyeballing the patient. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so, so I think um, we have to think about it a little bit from, from a different angle, I think. Uh, plateau pressures being high and trying to limit the plateau pressures, is a, that's a true statement. We want to do that. But um, what we're dealing with is if we get a patient that has a plateau pressure of 30, uh, then what you should register in your mind is, oh, my gosh, I'm dealing with a really stiff lung. And uh, this, these lungs are really sick. That's what should register instead of focusing on, hey, let's try to keep this plateau pressure under 30. I think that's true. You need to do that. Absolutely. As you're titrating up the PEEP, you want to try to minimize um, and not go, you know, for example, you can't turn up the PEEP to 24 and then leave the tidal volume at 500. Let's say, let's say you were doing six cc's or eight cc's per kilo. That would be problematic. That's when you have both barotrauma and volutrauma. So, uh, you know, you want to always, whether it's the initial setting or as you, uh, as the uh, lung disease evolves, you want to apply the principles of lung protection, which is what you're mentioning. Try to limit the tidal volumes and try to limit the pressure as much as possible. But when that plateau pressure is 30, that should register in the back of your mind. Hey, I got a problem here. It's more diagnostic than anything else as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and, and so uh, when we were talking about earlier, how do we monitor these patients over time? That's why that plateau pressure is so important uh, to, to sort of monitor on a day-to-day basis throughout your shift at night and in the morning. So I think probably the the last question we have time for before take-home points is, I guess, a, a bit of a two-parter. Can you tell us, for a patient with traditional ARDS, what are the evidence-based therapies that that we would cycle through if we were treating it? And then maybe the second part of that would be, how are we seeing that being different in the patient with COVID-19? Yeah, that's those are good questions. I, I think um, a lot of the principles are, are remain the same. So I, I generally advocate for the P's and uh, I have it down in terms of uh, what is backed by randomized controlled trial and level one evidence to a certain degree uh, we could limit it to the five P's. The, the first P is lung protection. So the principles of lung protection should be uh, consistent throughout uh, as much as uh, possible. And so, um, so that, that's one. Uh, PEEP is the second P. So, so optimizing PEEP. Um, so, you know, for every patient, the optimal PEEP may be different. And so, uh, you know, the best way to determine what that optimal PEEP is is through an esophageal mammometer, but you don't have that luxury. Uh, so generally, clinically, you just do it at the bedside. You start with a PEEP of 5 and, and then see what happens. You go up to a PEEP of 10 and see what happens. If the oxygenation improves, then you, you can keep going up. Uh, there comes a point where the PEEP is too high, and uh, you'll know by, you know, seeing that if you go up from 15 to 20, for example, that the patient all of a sudden needs pressors, you know, that's, that's not, that's a problem. And so that's when you you want to turn it down. And so, so optimizing PEEP is the second P and then prune, uh, prune is for trying to dry them out as much as possible. And in general, in these patients, 
Um, early on, uh, you want to make sure that they're intravascularly volume replete. As the, the uh, disease evolves, um, sometimes they'll go into shock for uh, other reasons and you'll need to give them some fluid. And then after uh, the uh, patient has stabilized and maybe you've weaned them off pressors, um, the, the strategy is try to get them as dry as possible. So that's a scenario where they've passed that acute phase and now you're dealing with stiff lungs, the pit plateau of 30, they're five, six liters positive. And so this is where daily weights and, and watching them day to day is very important. And you're going to say, okay, I'm going to try to shoot for their dry weight over the next two or three days, um, which, uh, which means that you got to have an accurate weight when they get admitted, right? And so, um, and, and so that's when you start that Lasix or BMX strip. Um, you may want to chase that with a little albumin. There is some evidence for that. Um, and uh, the, you know, it's clear that dry lungs are, are, uh, are happy lungs. And uh, there's a nice uh, uh, New England Journal uh, uh, study, randomized control trial, called the FACT trial that showed that. And then so that's the, uh, the third P, P. The fourth P is what um, people have been talking about, prone. And uh, that, that can, you can talk about that for another hour. But uh, this is something in ventilated patients. Um, there's a mortality, there's mortality benefit. A couple of trials have demonstrated this. And then uh, the fifth P is a little bit controversial because um, uh, the first trial uh, that came out, again, in the New England Journal, uh, demonstrated benefit. Um, but the second, another trial demonstrated no benefit. And so we're not really sure whether this improves outcome long term, but paralyzed. So that's the fifth P. And so in general, we'll use a neuromuscular blockade uh, called uh, NIMBEX, cis-atricurium, um, and it's something that doesn't require uh, intact kidney or liver to, to get rid of. And so it's metabolized very rapidly. Uh, but still, uh, we're not sure long term if that's the right thing to do. I think, you know, we're quick to paralyze patients when they're not uh, sinking with the ventilator. As I said earlier, I think it's probably a better approach to try to match the patient need with the ventilator setting, carefully uh, titrate the knobs in the ventilator so that they tolerate the ventilator better rather than, um, you know, sedating them um, uh, and paralyzing them so that, you know, you basically, they tolerate it. Uh, they tolerate whatever we give them. Um, and so, um, you know, who knows about the paralysis? Still, that's something that you have in your back pocket. Um, and and um, those are the five P's. And there's a six P, which is put on ECMO. Uh, but we, we don't have to talk about that right now. <laughs> yeah, ECMO. I don't think Paul or I are going to be deciding when anybody needs ECMO. Uh, hopefully no, there will the be cannulating. It'll be fine. <laughs> hopefully someone else will be there. And uh, I, I think I think this is a really great summary. I think if we're at the point where we're kind of throwing Hail Mary passes on these patients, we will be hopefully having an intensivist that we can speak to about, about this, uh, where the patient's really going to be in trouble. Um, so this, this was fantastic. Uh, we definitely have to let you go. And uh, I would ask you, what are a couple take-home points that you really want people to remember? And I know there's we barely scratched the surface. There's so much in this topic, and we're going to point people to other resources to supplement this and maybe make some more ourselves in the future here. Well, I think practically speaking, if you know the reason we're having this talk right now is because um, you know internists and hospitalists are being asked. Um, to, to come and, and uh, help augment uh, and help in the ICU. And so really my, my, the most 
practical advice I, I can probably offer is that I would um, uh, meet with the ICU attendings uh, that are there, that group, ask them if they have an algorithm. If not, ask them to create one for you for specifically for this scenario. And I think that's going to be more helpful than anything else we talked about. Right. And I think University of Washington, I think places like Brigham, I'm sure if they uh, DM Stewart on Twitter, he would send he would send them information. <laughs> right. There's uh, every everybody is really open sourcing everything at this point. Yeah, so good. Uh, you should be able to get your hands on an algorithm. And Kevin, uh, before we let you go for real, is there anything that you would like to plug before we let you go? Yes. Uh, so uh, relevant to our what we face uh, with the current pandemic. Uh, our group has uh, created a website that has a lot of resources I think that could be helpful to everyone. The website is covid19toolbox.com. It was created by one of our pulmonary sleep fellows, Brian Foster. In it, you'll find uh, multiple tabs that includes the DOD COVID practice management guide. It's um, started at 50 pages and now it's uh, over 100 pages of it's really a comprehensive manual that uh, if you know the DOD, DOD is going to really, you know, be really detailed in, in instructions. And so I think that's going to be a nice guide. And then in uh, in that website also is a tab that takes you to the YouTube videos, the instructional videos that you talked about, Matt, featuring yes. Dr. Jessica Bunin uh, and others. Uh, it's a compilation of videos. Now it's including nursing uh, video, uh, instructional videos, how to set up A-lines. There's also instructions about how to set up ventilators in case you run out of RTs. You may want to do that. Uh, and so it's a, this website is uh, something that I think uh, could be helpful to a lot of folks. Kevin, uh, thank you so much for all your time tonight. This was, I, I feel much less anxiety than I, I was feeling before this. I feel uh, somewhat ready to go in there and at least uh, just ask the nurses and respiratory therapists what to do, <laughs> the people that normally work in the ICU. But uh, thank you for this. Well, thanks, guys. This has been a, a, a great honor and a pleasure. Great talking to you guys. Likewise. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mm. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Didn't like that one either. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to Cyrus the Younger, Cyrus Askin for uh, producing this episode as well as Michael Rose and Kathleen Hiltz for helping to write and produce the show to Elena Gibson for doing some of our figures and images for this and to our social media team Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook until next time I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto and I've been Dr. Cyrus Askin and I would bring remiss in not thanking Stuart for composing our excellent theme music and also thanking Claire Morgan of Nodderly for editing our audio as per always. And also as per always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.